Well, church family, as you heard earlier, we are beginning a new series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that we have entitled A Promised Return. And I'm really excited to begin this study together through the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because I've never taught through them all. I've, thought, I've taught through pieces of them, but never through the whole books in their entirety. And I believe that these books, which were presented for a long time as one book, have a great deal to speak to us in our present situation. So incredible how God's word continues to speak to us today and show us its relevance for our time, even from words that were written in the mid-400s B.C. It's incredible, but it's not surprising. That's exactly what God promised us about his word in the verse we read at the beginning of our service today, Romans 15, 4, where Paul says, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through encouragement from the scriptures. God inspired the words of Ezra and Nehemiah to give the people of God then and the people of God today hope, to give us encouragement. And I have no doubt that at the end of this study, we will walk away filled with hope and deeply encouraged. What I want to do today to begin our series is to situate these two books within the larger biblical story. Because it's so important for us to understand their position in God's greater story, to feel the, the full weight of their message to us. Ezra and Nehemiah are books written about the post-exile pe uh, period of Israel. They're, they're books that describe the return of God's people to the land of promise on the other side of their God-ordained exile. In case you don't remember, the people of God had been banished from their land and subjected to the rule of foreign powers. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. And these victories from pagan nations, these foreign kings, they were not accidents. They were the design of God to bring his people back to himself, to a place of repentance. See, the chosen people of God had become idolaters, worshiping other so-called gods from other nations that were really just the creation of sinful man's imagination. The people of God, Israel, had taken their role as God's chosen people for granted. They saw God as an afterthought, more worried about their own comfort and pleasure than his glory. Does that sound familiar? So God takes action for the sake of his people and for the sake of his holy name. And listen to what he writes to them in Jeremiah chapter 25. This is to the southern kingdom right before he sends them into Babylonian captivity. He says in verse 4, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and his prophets. And because you have failed to do this, verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for you all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. 
and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years, after these years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making that land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So notice here, the judgment that God is allowing his people to come under is intentional. God has given them a number of chances to repent, and they have not. And now they will experience his divine judgment, his discipline. But in the midst of that discipline, there's a kernel of hope. And that's always the case when God deals in this kind of way with his people. God's allowing these foreign kingdoms to only have this kind of power for a limited time, 70 years in fact. And then after that, they will be judged for their sinfulness and their idolatry. This time of discipline will not last forever for God's people. God wants them to come back to him. He wants them to repent. He wants them to be restored. Ezra and Nehemiah begin at the end of this judgment. Babylon has been defeated, just as God said in Isaiah 44 and 45, by the Persian king Cyrus. And God uses this pagan king as an instrument of his promised restoration. The people are able to return to the land of promise just as God said they would. He is giving them a new start. So let's read our text together this morning, Ezra chapter 1, and we'll venture a little bit into Ezra chapter 2 as well. Here's what the Word of God says. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that... He made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. 
Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Merethedeth, the treasurer who counted them to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, and 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. I think we, did, we could describe Ezra 1 as a chapter of hope because we are seeing the sun rise for the people of God as they come out of this period of extended darkness. Israel's getting another chance to be the people that God has called them to be. In fact, when you think about the whole story of the Bible, it's pretty striking how Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2 repeat the actions of Israel coming into the land of promise the first time. Earlier in the Old Testament, and the story of the Exodus, and the conquests of Joshua and Judges, the return from exile becomes a sort of new Exodus. Just like in the story of Exodus, the people of God here are released from exile and allowed to travel to the land that God has promised them. They went out from Egypt first, and now they are going out from Babylonia. And just like in the story of the Exodus, the people of God are able to use the resources of a foreign power to fulfill God's work for them. They plundered Egypt, and now they plunder Babylonia, taking not only what Nebuchadnezzar took from them, but also the resources of the people who were around them, according to chapter 1, verse 4. The resources of this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, will be used by God to build his own kingdom. And then just like at the end of the story of the Exodus and the conquests of Joshua and Judges, the people of God are finally able to enter into the land and inhabit it. And we see that in Ezra chapter 2. They are now enjoying a new conquest. So what God has taken from them, he is now restoring to them. The people of God will get back their homes. They'll get back their land, their cities, their culture. The people of God will get back their resources that God has taken from them. They'll get back God as well. That's the whole point of rebuilding the temple, which at this time was the central meeting place between God and man. We'll see in the study of these books an incredible work of restoration. But here's what we'll also see. We'll see some limits to this specific restoration. Yes, this may be a new exodus, but it's not the final exodus. This is a great return for God's people, but it is not the greatest return that awaits them. There's a tension here as the people of God return to him. Because while many things are set right, there are also a lot of things that are still wrong. They're still under the rule of a foreign king, not their own king, not the, the promised future king who will sit on the throne of David. They've been sent home, but they're still servants of another kingdom. And then there's the land itself. It's not like it used to be. The temple is still destroyed. They got to rebuild that. And so is the city of Jerusalem. The walls 
are crumbled. And there are once again people, foreign people, inhabiting their land. But perhaps the greatest problem that is yet to be solved is in the people themselves. They are ultimately the same because in their hearts, they're still idolaters. And as a result, they are separated from God in a greater way than just being away from his temple. Look with me at Ezra chapter 2, verses 59 to 63 for a second. Here's what the word of God says. The following were those who came up from Telmalah, Telharshad, Cherub, Adon, and Amer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652, also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Akaz, and the sons of Brazili, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Brazili, the Galeadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. What we see here in this passage are some people who are claiming to be priests, yet they cannot prove their lineage. And so they are excluded from their priestly duties and they are declared unclean. And at first that may seem a little harsh, but it's really for their own good. Because if if they go into the presence of God and partake of this holy food and they aren't clean, they're not accepted by God, then they would be judged immediately and die. God's holiness would demand that because of their sinfulness. And here's what that teaches us. There's a greater exile that all of us have experienced. All of us have been exiled from the presence of God. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. We've all rebelled against God. We've all worshipped other gods that have no business receiving our worship. And as a result, we still sit under God's judgment. All of creation sits under God's judgment. And the story of the Bible, Not just the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. The whole thing is a story of restoration. It's a story of a great return wherein God would make possible the return of mankind to to fellowship with him just as we did in the garden, or at least a remnant of mankind. In this greater return, there would be no question about our standing. God's holiness would not be a danger to us but rather something that we would celebrate, something that we would delight in for all of eternity. And this work of restoration, this greater return, could only happen through the work of Jesus Christ. He has enabled those of us who call upon his name and repentance and belief to be finally declared clean. His death and resurrection have made a way for a greater work of restoration. And while, yes, we are still in a wilderness of sorts, we're we're still experiencing a a little bit of this exile between the the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, we know that there's a day when King Jesus will return and take us home to a new heaven and a new earth 
united by a new Jerusalem that he will build and whose glory will never, ever fade. Now, what gives us confidence that God will be able to bring about this work of restoration, this greater work of restoration, as he did in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? What about the writing of Ezra and Nehemiah give us confidence that God could orchestrate even this greater return? Well, in the same way that these books cause us to look forward to the greater work of Jesus, they also remind us and teach us why we should trust God to make it happen. They help us understand why God is able to do this work and why he must do this work. Now, let's dwell here for a moment. I think it's really important. Ezra and Nehemiah teach us that God is able to do this work of restoration and that he must do this work of restoration. Let's consider each one of those separately for a moment. God is able to do this work. God does not just desire to see his people restored. He is able to bring about this restoration. And here we're talking about the sovereignty of God, his rule and authority over all things. And I hope you see that's clearly on display in Ezra chapter 1 and 2. There can be no question who is orchestrating this return. Now, on the surface, it may seem like all of this was a result of Cyrus just being a good guy who had a soft spot in his heart for the Jewish people. But that is not why he did this. And that's not why he declared what he declared in verse 2. No, no pagan king gives glory and honor to God in this way for giving him the success that he is enjoying. Actually, pagan kings usually resisted the things of God. Yet, according to verse 1, God was stirring Cyrus's spirit. He was stirring his heart, the most powerful man on the planet, to do the work of a more powerful God, to accomplish his purposes for his kingdom, not the Persian kingdom. And then beyond that, within the people themselves, they didn't just get up and and say, we're going back to Jerusalem, God was stirring their hearts as well to return and build the temple according to verse 5. So God is the one pulling the strings here. God is the one orchestrating all of this for his glory and his greater redemptive purposes. Now I want you to think about the confidence that should give us in the Lord. There's no power greater than God's power. No power. There's no plan that man can make that can stand in the way of God's plan. What God wants to happen, he's going to make happen. So if he wants this greater work of restoration to happen, if he wants this greater return to happen, then he's going to make it happen. And he will use whatever he desires within the created order toward those ends. Friends, You can have confidence in the hope of this greater return because God is powerful enough to bring it about. If he wants it, he will do it. And the Bible is clear that he wants it. And that leads us to point number two. Not only is God able to do this work, he must do this work. Why? Because he has promised that he will do this work of restoration. His plan all along 
His design, in, in order to bring him glory, has been to undo the curse of Genesis chapter 3. He wants this remnant to return. He wants us to experience the restoration he's been planning since the beginning of creation. And he has willingly tied himself through his promises to this redemptive work. He did not have to make a way for this return, but he desired to. And because of that desire, he has promised that he will do it. And when he makes a promise, his character demands that he will fulfill it. This is good news for us, friends. God is always faithful to his promises. And we see that on display here in this text. What God promised to the prophet Jeremiah and to the prophet Isaiah, he is bringing to completion. Cyrus said what he said in order to show God's faithfulness to his word through the prophet Jeremiah. He said he would do it, and now he's doing it. And the same thing is true in this larger work that we're talking about. God promised, even in Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 15, that he would do something about the curse. He promised he would send a, a greater sacrifice to permanently atone for our sin. He promised he would send a greater priest who could bring us into the presence of God. He promised us that he would send a greater king who would let us live truly in freedom. And all of these promises scattered throughout the Old Testament were fully revealed in Jesus Christ. He was faithful to all those promises. And now he has also promised us that Jesus will return to finish what he began in his first coming, leading us the new people of God, his church, out of exile, out of the wilderness, into his presence forever. To never be separated again. I want you to hear me this morning. If God has promised us this, he will do it. Look at the evidence throughout the scripture of his faithfulness to his word and trust that he will finish what he began. Revelation 21 and 22 will happen just like God promised. God can orchestrate this greater return, and he must. And because of that, we can be encouraged today. And we can be filled with hope. Now, why is this message so important for us today? Now, obviously, there are elements of us of the story that are important for us at any time in our lives, but I think it's really important for us to consider what this passage is teaching us in the larger context of the Bible in this specific time. Here's what I mean. Many of us are longing for a return right now, a return to normalcy. We want our lives to be restored because this COVID-19 stuff is getting real old real quick. And while we understand the need for social distancing and for stay-at-home orders in terms of the general well-being of our friends and family, particularly those who are at high risk for negative effects from this disease, we also want our old lives back. We want to see our friends and our family. We want to go to work or school, funnily enough. We want to go to restaurants or to the movies. We want to travel. We want to watch sports. We feel a longing, a deep longing for this kind of return. But here's what I want you to see. 
even that return, just like the return in Ezra 1 and 2, will be incomplete. This longing for restoration, it's meant to point us to something greater. Because even if all that we lost in the past month and a half was restored, even if you got to go to your prom or your graduation, even if you got to have the wedding of your dreams with the largest crowd imaginable, even if you got to go on your dream vacation or you didn't lose your job or you didn't have your retirement account emptied from the stock market, even if all those things happened, it wouldn't solve our greatest problem. It wouldn't be the greater return that we need. At some point, we will experience normalcy again, but it will be normalcy in the midst of exile. Until the day that Jesus comes to take us home. And at this moment, at least in some way, we need to see God's grace at work to help us remember the greater work that he is doing so that we will set our ultimate hope on that. I'm not saying it's wrong to to want things to go back to the way they were. I'm longing for that too. I just hope you realize what we're missing when that time does come so that you can long truly for the right thing. So you can long for the greater return that Jesus will provide. That this momentary longing is meant to point us to. And here's the good news. If you are in Christ, you will be fully welcomed into the presence of God because you will be declared clean by the greater high priest, Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ, then there's bad news. The exile you're experiencing now will last for all of eternity. So what are you waiting for? Would you see God's provision for you in Jesus and trust him today? Would you repent of your sin that separated you from God, removed you from his presence? And would you believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to return to him? What greater way could this time be redeemed than in your salvation? God is able to bring about our greater restoration, and he will bring it about. He must. He's promised it. Let us long for that day of restoration, more than any temporary restoration we can experience here. That will truly be a glorious day. Let me pray for us, church. Father, I do pray that you would help us set our hopes rightly on the greater return that you've promised us, the greater work of restoration that awaits those of us who are in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in your word in Ezra and Nehemiah. We rejoice in how it prepares our hearts for the work of Jesus and how it gives us greater confidence in your sovereignty and your faithfulness. Father, would you seal up these truths in our heart so that we can be a more faithful people for you. God, we love you, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.